This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, truth seekers, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 280, entitled Exploring the Triad in Romans 15, verse 30. Now, this week's episode will continue our new series that seeks to explore and better understand the various passages in the New Testament where a triad appears. Usually, this triad is in the form of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Now, some interpreters will look at these triads and they will say, look, this is clear evidence in the first century that the New Testament writers believed and taught the doctrine of the Trinity. Other interpreters will point out the historical anachronism with this sort of interpretation, and they will reject it as something that is impossible for first century readers to have. First century readers cannot possess a theology that was formulated in the 4th and 5th centuries. Now last week we looked at the most famous triad in the New Testament found in the Great Commission. And we observed in Matthew 28:19 that the doctrine of the Trinity that was formulated in the 4th and 5th centuries was completely unknown to Matthew and to his original readers. So what did the triadic reference at the end of the book of Romans mean for Paul's original audience? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the triad in the epistle to the Romans. Now this is a lesser known triad, but my attempt in this mini-series is to be exhaustive in our exploration of the triads within the New Testament. So in Romans 15, verse 30, we can observe the following. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That's Romans 15, verse 30. So there you can see we have a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, a reference to the Spirit, and a reference to God. Certainly that is unambiguous proof of the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, I'm not convinced, and I imagine that my listeners are not convinced as well. So let's look at these three references. So we first have the reference to Jesus, but it's more specifically our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus our Lord? Well, that's because in Rome, Caesar was the most obvious Lord for all of those there. That is the title that was given to Caesar, and at the time of the writing of Romans, that particular Caesar was probably the Emperor Nero, and Paul is trying to redirect the allegiance of the Romans from worshiping Caesar as Lord to honoring Jesus as their Lord. And of course, the phrase here, Lord, this title, is not a name. It's not a proper name. It's not a reference to Yahweh. It is our Lord, which is not a way that Yahweh is referred to in 
the Hebrew Bible. Yahweh is the personal name of God, but our Lord is a title. Jesus is our master. The second reference we have is in reference to the Spirit, but it's not exactly the Holy Spirit. It is the love of the Spirit. Paul appeals to the love of the Spirit that the Romans possess. So the question is, is this the love that the Spirit is expressing in its innermost being, which would prove that the Spirit is a conscious person that is able to show love to others? Or is this the love that stems forth from the fruit of the Spirit, like we see in Galatians 5.22? That is, the loving behavior produced by those Christians who possess the Spirit. Is Paul appealing for that sort of benevolent behavior? And then we have the prayer directed to God. But in Greek, it is literally the God, ton theon. Paul wants his Roman readers to pray to the God, the one true God. And so we can observe a few initial points at the start of our investigation. First, the God in Romans 15 verse 30 is distinct from Jesus. For Paul, Jesus is not a person within the one God. Jesus is distinguished from the God. That much is absolutely clear. Second, prayers are being offered to God, not to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Third, the appeal to pray to God doesn't read as if it is including the Spirit in the same way that it includes Jesus. Now, the appeal certainly involves our Lord Jesus Christ, but when it comes to the Spirit, the appeal is on the Spirit's love, not on the Spirit itself. And the word order in Greek suggests that it is the love that is being appealed to, not the Spirit. So what other clues about God, Jesus, and the Spirit might we gather from exploring the epistle to the Romans as a whole, which would allow us to responsibly place Romans 15 verse 30 in its overall context? That'll move us to our second point. Point number two, what Paul's letter to the Romans teaches about God. Now, the book of Romans talks a lot about God. In fact, the noun theos, the Greek noun for God, appears 153 times in the book of Romans. Now, we're not going to be able to read 153 verses, so I wanted to pick out some of the major overall passages that talk and give us a clear definition as to what Paul the Apostle believed and taught about this God to whom he encourages his readers to pray. So when we open up Romans and read the first three verses, we can get a little glimpse about what Paul thinks. So starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his Son. That's Romans 1, verses 1 through 3. So Paul here is talking about God, namely the gospel of God. But then in verse 3, 
he says that the gospel concerns his son. So we have God and we have someone else being his son. And so if God is the male father of the son, then God is the father alone. You see the logic in that? If God has a son, and if his son is using a singular masculine pronoun, and this means that God is a male, the father. The father has a son. So God is the father alone, and God's son, someone distinct from God, is, of course, Jesus. And as we pointed out here, the pronoun his indicates that God is one person, not two or three persons. Let's look at another passage. Later in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans 1, 25. So these people exchanged the truth of the God. In Greek, it is the God. They exchange God's truth for a lie, and they should have been worshiping the creator rather than the creature. Now, this phrase creator is what I want to focus in on. It is not actually a noun in Greek. Creator is actually a verb. In Greek, it actually has a definite article, ton ktisanta, literally in Greek, the one who creates. And so this designation creator proves that there's only one person who created, not two or three persons. That is clear in the verb, which is singular, and the attached definite article, which is also singular. The creator is one person, likely God, who is the Father alone. And of course, the same is true in the Hebrew language. Let's look at another passage. In Romans 3, verses 29 through 30, we have a very interesting piece of data that Paul reveals to us. Paul says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. That's Romans 3, 29 through 30. So Paul here says quite openly that God is one, and he is clearly echoing the Jewish Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4. What we can see here is that Paul, as a Christian, continues to believe, and he teaches his followers the oneness of God, the Jewish monotheistic faith. Paul has not abandoned the Shema, nor has Paul expanded it, as some interpreters would like for Paul to have done. Now, in the reference God is one, we have the word one, which is an adjective. It's a masculine adjective. And this does not indicate, at least in this construction, that there is one God. It actually indicates that God is one, namely one person. The adjective one, being masculine, means one person, not one thing. And of course, the phrase God is one is followed by the word who. God is one and he, he who, will justify the circumcised. And this Greek relative pronoun is singular, again proving that God is one person. 
So Paul did not teach the triune God. He taught that God was one person in continuity with the monotheistic faith that he inherited from Judaism. Let's continue. Romans 8 verse 14 has Paul saying, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's Romans 8, 14 through 15. So when believers are adopted into the family of the one God, these believers will cry out and they will address God as Father, as Abba, just like Jesus did in Mark chapter 14. Now, when believers are adopted into this family and they understand who God is, they don't address God as Abba, Son, and Spirit. They don't address God as Father, Son, and Spirit. They address God as the Father, as the Father alone. And this is very important because this also includes Gentiles who are having to turn away from polytheism and the worship of many gods into this new understanding of the one true God. So Paul has to teach them who the one true God is if he's going to evangelize Gentiles. And for Paul, when Gentiles convert, they are going to cry out and regard God as Abba, as the Father, as the Father alone, not Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's keep moving on. In Romans 15, verse 5, Paul says, May the God, who gives perseverance and encouragement, grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that, with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 15, verses 5 through 6. So Paul here wants the mind of Christ to be something that everyone possesses. But this mind of Christ is defined and exhibited with the single voice of confession that confesses and glorifies that God is the God and Father of Jesus. So they see the fact that Jesus has a God, and Jesus' God is the Father. God is the God of Jesus, and the Father is the Father of Jesus, indicating that God has fathered Jesus. Of course, that's because he is the Son. And all sons stem from their fathers. And this, of course, distinguishes God and Jesus, because the Father is Jesus' God. So that's quite clear about what Paul thinks and teaches about the one true God in the book of Romans. Let's move to point three, what Paul's letter to the Romans teaches about the Son. So we've already alluded to the opening aspect of Romans. Let's continue to read this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, the gospel concerns his Son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. So Jesus here is God's Son. He is born, more specifically, he is begotten as a descendant of David, from the seed of David. This means that Jesus is the biological and lineal descendant of David. David was a human being. David had children. Those children were human beings. Those children had other children. They were also human beings. If Jesus is the descendant of David, if he is the seed of David, then Jesus is also a bona fide, genuine, 
authentic human being. And Jesus, of course, would find David to be his ancestor. Jesus is younger than David, that much is absolutely clear. Let's move along. In Romans 2, verse 16, Paul says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Romans 2, 16. So here we could see that Jesus, the one who's been crucified and raised, has been highly empowered to share in one of God's prerogatives, namely the prerogative to judge the secrets of men. This is going to happen on that day, on the day of judgment. But we can see here that God is actually judging through Jesus. Jesus is doing the judging, but God is actually working through Jesus, allowing Jesus to function with the God-given prerogative as the cosmic judge. And in this passage, God and Jesus are distinguished. They're not equated. They're not identified as the same being. God and Jesus have not collapsed into a single being. God is working through Christ Jesus in order to judge the world. So Jesus is a highly empowered and highly authorized human being. But that's because God is working through Jesus and God has shared with Jesus God's own prerogatives. Let's move along. Romans 5 verse 10 says that if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5 verse 10. So here that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. His son died. His son experienced death. What does that mean, his son? Well, it's the son of God. The Son of God died. Now, some interpreters think that only the Son of Man part of Jesus died, not the Son of God part, under the assumption, by the way, that Jesus has two parts, a Son of Man part and a Son of God part. Paul argues, on the contrary, that the Son of God, in fact, died. And death, of course, is something that God himself cannot experience. Why? Because God is immortal, meaning God can't die, no matter how hard he tries. Jesus, the Son of God, however, did, in fact, die. And God, someone distinct from Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead. A little bit later, in chapter 5, Jesus is contrasted with Adam, the first human being. In chapter 5, verse 14, we read, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. That's Romans 5, verses 14 through 15. So here we can see that Adam, and you remember that in Hebrew, Adam just means human, means humanity, the first human being. Adam, according to Paul, was the type of the one to come. So Adam was first, and the one to come, namely Jesus, came after that. Okay? So Adam was first, the first human being, and Jesus came after that. And then we could see that the one to come is clearly identified as Jesus, 
whom Paul calls here, quite clearly, a man, a human being. Adam was a human being, and Jesus was a human being. And they both function as human beings who represent other persons. So that's enough in regard to what Paul thinks about the Son. Let's move to our fourth point. What does Paul's letter to the Romans teach about the Holy Spirit? Now, Romans does talk a lot about the Spirit, and you'll have to look at some of my other podcasts to get some more detail on many of the other passages, but I wanted to give two largely representative passages about how the Spirit functions for Paul's recipients. So in Romans 5, verse 5, Paul says that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 5, verse 5. So we can see here that the Spirit actually should be translated as the Spirit that was given to us, not the Spirit who was given to us. Why is this the case? Answer, the verb to give, because the Holy Spirit that was given to us, the verb to give, in Greek, vivomi, is actually a neuter participle, not a masculine participle. Okay, so the Spirit is not a person. The Spirit is a thing that the God, in this passage, it is the God, with the definite article, tonteon, the Spirit is the thing that the God shares with believers in order to mark them out as his people. Okay, and the Spirit empowers people, and we can see that it's going to express the love of God. That, of course, is important because we are interested in the love of the Spirit in our original passage in chapter 15, verse 30. But the key point here is that the Holy Spirit is not a who. The Holy Spirit is a thing based on the verb that indicates that that which is given is actually a thing, not a masculine person. Let's look at another passage. Verse 11 in chapter 8, Romans 8, 11, says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8, verse 11. Okay, so we can see that the Spirit of him is mentioned at the beginning of the passage. Who is the him in the phrase Spirit of him? Well, clearly, that is the Spirit of God, whom we've identified as the Father. And later in the verse, the him is the he who raised Christ from the dead. That, of course, is the Father. That, of course, is God. And then we could see the Spirit is described as His Spirit. It's God's Spirit. And this, of course, indicates that God is a single person due to the singular pronoun. His proves that the person to whom the Spirit belongs is a single person. We've already indicated that. And then at the end of the passage, where it says the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, that again is incorrect. It's impossible to translate it that way. It's not a matter of ambiguity or a matter of choice. You just can't grammatically make that decision. The verb to dwell here, inikeo, is a neuter participle, not a masculine participle. So the phrase should be, quote, through his spirit that dwells in you, not through 
his spirit who dwells in you. You can't translate a neuter participle as if it's referring to a person. It's neuter because it refers to a thing. So even though the translations sometimes try to push the conscious personality and personhood of the Holy Spirit, the Greek doesn't actually allow that. And this is why it's important to gain an elementary knowledge of biblical Greek in order to better understand these finer points. So taking all the information and putting it together, what sort of conclusions can we draw? Well, first, we can see that for Paul, God is the Father alone. God is the one true God from Paul's Jewish monotheistic faith that, of course, prayed daily the Shema. Yahweh our God is one, more specifically, one person. We also observe that Jesus is the human Messiah who has been crucified and raised from the dead. He is the Son of God, and now he is the true Lord. He's now taking the place of Caesar's lordship, having been exalted to heaven by the true God. We've also seen that the Spirit is the power and presence of the one true God, and this Spirit powerfully raised Jesus from the dead, and the Spirit currently empowers the people of God to live righteously, including giving believers the ability to produce love. And so, Paul prays in Romans 15 verse 30 that his readers would join together in prayer to the one true God, whom Paul has identified as the Father, and Paul appeals to his readers to pray through our Lord Jesus and through the love that the Spirit gives as fruit. Paul's prayer, therefore, is not a reference to the triune God. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to explore the triadic statements within the New Testament, passages that talk about God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Next week, we'll look closely at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, where God, Jesus, and the Spirit are again mentioned together in Paul's discussion of spiritual matters in the church at Corinth. Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, and by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash onegodpodcast. That's O-N-E-G-O-D-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Follow us on Twitter. If you'd like to offer a donation to the podcast, please check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.